Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 84? We sing, To God Be the Glory, which is a familiar gospel song by Fanny Crosby, who composed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I think in the thousands, actually, of gospel tunes. Um, and she was blind, but was used tremendously by the Lord, and we're still singing her songs today. Psalm 84 can be summed up with the simple statement that there should be and there is no greater desire than to be in the presence of the Lord and to worship Him according to His prescribed worship. What the exact occasion of this psalm is, is unknown. Calvin believed that it was David who was barred from worship and desired to be in worship, and this was the expression of it. Spurgeon views it more as a picture of a pilgrim coming to the tabernacle to worship. You'll notice that in the superscription, it says to the choir master, according to the Getith, which is a musical, liturgical expression, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Many believe this is a Davidic psalm, it would have been composed by David as the human author, through which the Holy Spirit uh, penned this. Spurgeon says it excels to us a Davidic perfume. Very poetic way of saying that, that he believes this was of David, and it sounds as if it's David. We'll see that it takes place in, in three movements. We see the desire of the temple, the desire of worship. We see the blessings for the journey, on, on one's journey to worship. And then finally, the blessing of those that trust upon the Lord. So let us hear the word of God. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. It's clear 
This is speaking of the desire of worship, what takes place on the traveling to worship, and the the blessed state of those that trust in the Lord as they worship him. And we see from the beginning is a, a desire of the temple or a desire of worship in the temple. You see this in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And the, the temple is that special uh, place where God dwells. We know that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. But we also know, just from looking at the wilderness and the tent of tabernacle and how the camp was structured, that God separated himself amongst his people by degrees of holiness. I love in the beginning of John Owen's book, Meditations Upon the Glory of Christ, where he talks about the degrees of holiness, and he talks about the concentrated, special presence that's realized of God in a particular place of God's choosing, where people will there go to worship God according to God's word. And so when it speaks of this dwelling place, it is speaking of the special presence of God. He's speaking in plain, simple English of gathering to worship God according to his prescription of what worship is. In other words, God gave instructions. This is how you're to worship me. This is where you're to worship me. This is when you're to worship me. And so as he says, your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, he's speaking to all of that law that is describing exactly how God and when God and where God is to be worshipped. This is talking about prescribed worship. Notice what he says. How lovely it is it. And most often it's translated beloved. This is a beloved thing. It's speaking of the disposition of one's heart. That this idea of gathering to the presence of God where he has told us to, to worship, it's set aside as loved and cherished. And what is the, what is the motivating factor of this? Why is this lovely? It's specifically because it is where God is. It's the promise of the presence of God. He says, this is beloved, this is lovely. Just consider what it is that Christ brings to the believer that Christ dwells in the believer by his spirit, that Christ is with the church in times of difficulty, in times of joy, in times of celebration as we would take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's presence is with his people in a special way when his people have gathered to worship according to his word. That there is Christ in our midst, we're promised. What a wonderful truth what we have. And the beauty of it is this, is we don't have to go to a specific place. We go to where the gathering of the saints is on that day that the Lord has set aside to gather to him. He goes on to speak of this desire 
in, in, in very emphatic words. Notice what he says in verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. There's a connection here that we ought to see, and we've seen in other places of Scripture, is the connection in worship of both body and soul. Notice what he says. My soul longs. My heart longs. My flesh longs. This is the complete person is involved in this idea of worship in the desire for the Lord in worship. So this goes beyond just normal desires of things. That idea of longs, he longs for God. It's a strong, persistent desire when he says faints. My soul faints for the courts of the Lord. Again, the courts of the Lord would be the gathering to worship. Faints is to be consumed. And for what? The courts. To be in the temple area. To be gathered where they are called to be gathered. And from his inner being, in those courts, he sings for joy. I can't stress this enough. This is not speaking of uh, spontaneous worship according to God's own, or to man's own means. This is not speaking of some sort of feeling one may have as an individual, as true as those things may be. This is speaking very specifically of gathered worship. Calvin says this, Hence we learn that those are sadly deficient in understanding who carelessly neglect God's instituted worship as if they were able to mount up to heaven by their own unaided efforts. I'm glad Calvin said that. Because what he says is that anyone that doesn't uh, that, that thinks that they can recreate this outside of God's instituted ways, it, he's saying they're sadly deficient in their understanding of what worship is. Again, I, uh, Calvin says that, but I think he's right. I think he's right. What the psalmist is clearly speaking of is the gathering of the saints, which is so often neglected, isn't it? It's so easily passed aside. It's so easily passed aside that Paul has to write instructing of it. And he's so easily cast aside by Israel's history where the Sabbath day was, was really nothing to them. So many times they would neglect it and the Lord would punish them for it. But this is the desire of the heart of the true believer in Christ is that there is this desire and it comes out in this emphatic and poetic way that it's his strongest consuming desire to worship God. Notice what he says in verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And Many view this verse as simply this, is that David would observe that in the temple area or in the tabernacle area, that birds would very just naturally uh, 
land in a place, perch themselves in the tabernacle area, perch themselves eventually what would be in the temple. And what does it say that? That they're comfortable there. That they're stable there. That they're home there. That's the picture. That there's a comfortability there. That it's a home for them. And so what's the point for us is this, are, are we at home in the presence of the Lord? Are we comfortable and safe in the presence of the Lord in worship? But look at the picture of this also, the nest, where she may lay her young at your altars. What a beautiful picture. Do we bring our children to the appointed means of worship? Let me just say something that there comes obvious an obvious age where you know your 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 children become adults. Um, but just just for us to think about and, and until they they're making decisions and stuff they. They don't have a choice. We are to be like that bird that is laying them at the altar of the Lord. They, they don't have an option. We, we don't give that option as parents. That they need to be there in God's appointed means of worship, experiencing it. And that's what the Word of God tells us. He goes on to say in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now here's a distinction that's made that we have to note. Oftentimes what you will see, well in Israel it was particularly noticeable, you had a mixed group of people that would gather to worship. You think of Cain and Abel, both gathered to worship the Lord. But one was righteous and one was unrighteous. And oftentimes in gathered worship, you will have both the righteous and the unrighteous. But what is the clear distinction here is stated. The righteous ever singing your praise. Because someone can come to the house of the Lord. But the distinction is that phrase, that qualification, that they're ever praising you. That is here where we find the true mark of worship, a heart that is praising the Lord. It, it is what separates true worshipers from false worshipers, that they are expressing from their heart, from their fullness of who they are, thankfulness for the grace we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so blessed is the man that dwells in the presence of God. And as you look through this, you will see blessed again will come up in the next verse, but you think of the, 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 the beatitudes of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who meditates upon, on God's word. Blessed are those that rely upon the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those that are seeking the presence of God and are in the presence of God. Blessed are those that focus is upon the Lord. This is the desire of worship. This is the desire 
for the saints to have gathered at the, the, the tabernacle to gather eventually at the temple. But this is no less our desire. We are the temple. To gather then together. We rightly understand that the New Testament describes the temple as the people of God. There's a plurality that's being described. And so again, emphatically, this is speaking of worshiping as God has declared that we are to worship. He goes on to speak of the journey to worship. Uh, For those Old Testament saints, they would have to travel, oftentimes make a pilgrimage, in fact, you, you see the, the idea of pilgrimaging in verse 5, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, that is those that would be, would be traveling there to Jerusalem. And so what is stated is, blessed are those whose strength is in you. It begins there, so there's one of those blessedness. You think of this as a blessedness of the one who relies upon God. In order to rely upon God, in order to rest in his strength, to be in his strength, you have to first recognize about yourself what? That we're weak. That we're in desperate need of a God that is omnipotent. We must recognize our own weakness and need for God in order to tap into his strength, if you will. In order to find strength in the Lord, we are called to forsake our own self-dependence, any independence, but entirely rely upon the Lord. And notice what it says. This is the key to being blessed. That's that happiness. And so think about it. This is counter to how we normally think, isn't it? The more endowed with strength and self-sufficiency we think we are, we would believe that that would lead to greater happiness. Wouldn't it? To be able to rely on myself, to pick myself up by my own bootstraps, to be a self-made man, to be able to, to take on things on myself, that's the key to blessedness. That's what the world tells us, but that's not what God's Word tells us. God's Word tells us this, is that in Christ is where our, the strength is. And in order there, to be there, we have, a, we have a denial of self, recognizing our own Weakness. The key to blessedness is the one that relies upon the Lord because they're no longer relying upon themselves. They've forsaken their own works and rest solely in the completed work of Christ. If we begin to take on our own work, we've once again then worked ourselves back into a works-based view of life. And on this journey to worship for these pilgrims, it says in verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. The valley of Baca means the valley of weeping. Luther translated it as the valley of sorrow. So it's speaking of the valley of sorrow. So let me read it again. As they go through the valley of sorrow, 
as they go through the valley of weeping, as they go through the, the valley of suffering, of turmoil, they make it, notice what it says, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. What's the whole point? Is those that relied upon the Lord, even in the depths of weeping and sorrow, they are still blessed. And that, that God makes it a valley of suffering into a, a valley of abundance and joy. Well, what is that picture there? But they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. You, you think of the promise of the promised land, uh, if that they were obedient to the Lord, what he would bring into the land, that it would be fruitful and it would be bountiful, that they would have an abundance of food and wine and joy and children and all of those things, which was to be a picture of what? Eden. Even in sorrow there is joy for the worshiper of God. But there's something else here that strikes me is this, is the desire of worship is not lost in sorrow. The desire of worship is not lost in sorrow. The, the gathering of the saints is that joyous occasion even in the midst of pain. You know, it's, it's always struck me as incomprehensible how the, the Puritans would bury a child, bury a wife, bury a best friend, and then go preach Sunday service. They were not unemotional men. They were not Stoics. They were not heartless that didn't have love and care. They had great love and love for life and children and lives because they had a right understanding of God. But they would gather and often preach. I think how difficult that would be to do that. It seems like an impossible task. But we read of them doing that. It wasn't because they were superhuman. I think it's because we read right here as they go through the valley of sorrow, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. And even in the midst of great and deep sorrow, the Lord still provides us with an abundance. And the desire to worship God, to be with God's people, doesn't abate because of the sorrows of life. It shouldn't. And it so often does. It sometimes so often does afflict us. And that, that then, when we, we question why is it that I would not want to be gathering for worship, that's, that's a, an automatic diagnostic check of what's going on with our hearts. That the Lord should be causing us some introspection and asking, why is it that even in this sorrow, that I don't think this is a place of springs and the early rain that covers it with pools. And if we're ever in that place, it doesn't mean that necessarily there's something wrong with us or that, whether, that we're stuck in some sort of gross sin. We're fallen people. It means, though, that it is a time for us to ask, 
why don't I have this desire and go to the Lord and plead with him, Lord, may I have this desire to worship you. I'm in pain, I'm in suffering, but you have called us to worship. Give me the desire of my heart that I might worship you. He goes on to say, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And I think this is a beautiful attachment to what was previously said, is that the desire of the heart that worships grows in the respect of worshiping. Spurgeon says, we grow as we advance if heaven be our goal. If eternity be in our sight and be our aim and worship is there as the, the precursor to what we will do in heaven and in eternity, we grow strength by strength by strength in that worship. What a beautiful picture. He goes on to say, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Many people, commentators, argue over what exactly this means, how this fits in there. And it seems to be this, is if I cannot be in the temple, if I cannot be in the tabernacle, then Lord, hear my cries to you. If something had prevented him, if the pilgrim couldn't make it, that there would be a desire to cry out to the Lord in the midst of missing. I wonder if this is our heart's desire when we are away from the gathered saints, when we are away from God's appointed means of worship. Is our, is our heart desire to, to cry out to the Lord, to say, hear my prayer, give ear, O Lord, I'm away from your people. Is that our heart's desire as well? He goes on to say, Be our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Excuse me. Behold our shield. This is a tremendous verse, what it says here. Because the anointed is the shield. Or the shield is the anointed one. How would the psalmist have understood this? Those hearing the psalms during the time of David and after, they would have been understood, understood this as David. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. In many ways, this would be a prayer of, uh, to David, or to, not to David, but for David. And so how do we ultimately understand this? As Calvin says, this is a prayer for grace through a mediator. That ultimately, this is to behold Christ, our shield, who is the anointed, and smile upon him. Now think of what that means for us. Our prayer is then that we are shielded in Christ as our shield and that as the Father looks upon His Son in love, the anointed, we are kept safe in our shield, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh shields the Lord. The Lord shields the Lord. What a picture of our safety net 
is that if we are in Christ, He is our shield. Look on the face of your anointed. And the Father <coughs> only, excuse me, looks upon the Son with joy and pleasure and love. And if you are in the Son, that is how the Father will eternally look upon you because Christ is your shield. What a wonderful truth to be reminded of, especially when we read verses 1 through 8 and we say, my heart doesn't ring of that all the time. My heart doesn't express this the way David expresses it. I don't always feel like doing what's described here, or I don't always want to do what's described here. I don't even know what it means for my soul to long or to faint. And if you've ever experienced that, there's wonderful truth. Behold our shield. Because in Him, He perfectly desired the dwelling place of God. And we finally come to the blessedness of the one who trusts in him. In verse 10, such a wonderful verse, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think we have to look at this psalm and its totality from a twofold perspective. And the first is this, is the here and now of the psalmist and the here and now uh, in, in terms of us. For them, it would have been the, the temple, the public gathering of the saints, public worship according to God's appointed means. And for us, it's the gathering of the saints according to God's appointed means is that we would desire that. You can't escape that, that, that here and now language of the courts, the house of God. But then there's also this eternal perspective that we also have to see was that we desire to be with the Lord eternally. You know, I, just for one moment, in, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes, in verse 21, chapter 1, for me to live is Christ is, and to die is, is gain. You know that verse. What's very interesting about this verse is, is Calvin made the argument that it's most often translated wrong. And then Theodore Beza, the successor of Calvin, actually argued this verse is translated wrong as well. They translated it this way, and I'm paraphrasing their translation, for to me, to live is gain, and to die is gain. For me, to live in Christ is gain, and me, to die is gain. They both recognize that to say, if I live, I'm in Christ, that that's a gain. But if I die, I'm in Christ, what is that? It's a gain. And that, that's that, that both here and now perspective 
that if I live, I'm in Christ, and that's a gain. But if I was to die, I'm with Christ, and that's what? That's a gain. And that's, that's how we should see this verse. Here is that a, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. There is that here and now desire that this is gained, but then there is that eternal perspective. And this all comes in, in, in a comparison. A comparison. It's, the desire is comparative. The allurement of the world pales in comparison because you'll notice what it says, a thousand elsewheres, that is, if, if the whole world was opened up for me to dwell anywhere I could choose, in a multiplicity of places that I could think of to go and be, I'd rather be with God and worshiping Him. Notice then what it says, the tents of wickedness. What is the tents of wickedness to dwell in the tents of the wicked? Why? You would think, well, what's the appeal of dwelling in the tents of wickedness? Well, the idea of wickedness here is really the tents of comfort and leisure. I would rather be gathered to worship than to be in comfort and leisure. Is the Lord's Day an inconvenience or a day that we would desire? Is it as a day that, that completely ignores the resurrection of the living God? Or is it our greatest desire I think of how the Lord's Day is treated by the unregenerate, and we wouldn't expect anything less. They've turned Sunday into a day of sports, a day of, uh, uh, of leisure, a, a day of doing whatever one decides they want to do. It's now Sunday fun day. And I don't mean to be repetitive with the Sunday fun day, but it is the way our society looks at Sunday Funday rather than recognizing, no, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And we gather because there is an empty tomb on the day that the Lord left that tomb. Ultimately, one's desires are, are manifested towards their, their, their love for God or their desire to be with Him or their desire to shun Him. Our desires are manifested in one of those two ways. Our desire to love Him and gather to worship as He's called us to worship. Or it's the opposite to say, I'm going to shun this presence of God with His people. And I think we have to put it in those, those two terms in that way. He goes on to say, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This does not refer to temporary or momentary blessings of, of wealth and, and prosperity. We, we've already been warned that we walk through the, the vow of sorrow, didn't we? It is that we can trust God's providence in our life. We have a good God. No good thing does He withhold from us. 
You know, it says, for those who walk uprightly, th- this is not a, a, you merit God's good things. It, if we were completely obedient to God's word in uh, 100% of, of the possible ways of being obedient to God's word, we have not earned anything. We've only done what the Creator has demanded of His creation. We can't earn something even if we are perfectly good. And we know we're not. This is not speaking of that. This is speaking that the Lord takes care of His righteous ones that He has declared, that have, that have been given an imputed righteousness, that, that no valley of sorrow that we go through is wasted. But all things are working towards our good. And He is a shield to us. And that is that in Christ we are always protected. And the wonderful truth is that the darts of the enemy cannot destroy us. Our Christianity can neither be earned nor taken away. Because we are in Christ, who is our shield. But then it says he is also a son. What does that mean? S-U-N, son. The son is essential to what brings life to us and can never, ever be quenched. So, O Lord of hosts, here's the final blessed. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Trust. As one commentator says, is the chief ingredient in all worship and in every relation to the Lord. Happy is the one who trusts in the Lord. We all trust in something, don't we? We all trust in someone. But, but, but who do, is it that we trust? I don't apologize for quoting Spurgeon, and I won't apologize for closing with giving him the final quote. A man must know the Lord by the life of real faith. One can have no true rejoicing in the Lord's worship, his house, his son, or his ways. Oh, can we have no true rejoicing in the Lord's worship? in his house, in his son, or his ways. Dear reader, how fares it with thy soul? Let us ask that in light of what God's word says on gathering to worship. How fares it with thy soul? Heavenly Father, our desire is to worship you. We know this is by your grace. Even when it's difficult, Father, even when it's struggling in life, our desire is to worship you. We pray that you would give us the desires of our heart, that our greatest desire, our greatest longing would be to worship you according to your word as you have prescribed it. May it be our heart's cry that to dwell in your courts is better than a thousand elsewheres. May we look upon 
the gathering of the saints and say, Oh, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. And But Father, when we fell in this, we thank you for the forgiveness we have. And we thank you for our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never once failed to worship, who never once failed to follow your law completely and perfectly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand